Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Legal Trends podcast by Hannes Naumann. In this first series, we discuss international litigation trends with prominent lawyers from around the world and apply our Nordic perspective to them. What are the current litigation trends in the world? Will they reach the Nordics anytime soon, or are they already here? My name is Anna Maria Tamminen, and I'm a partner in the dispute resolution team at Hannes Naumann. And I am Helen Lehto, managing associate in the dispute resolution team at Hannes Naumann. In this episode, we discuss shareholder litigation and board liability litigation in the US and in the Nordics. And for this discussion, we are very honored to have with us today, Justin Clark, who is a partner in the litigation group of Cravath, Swain & Moore, one of the foremost litigation practices in New York. Justin's practice focuses on mergers and acquisitions, securities, antitrust, and general commercial litigation. Justin's clients include Acorn, American Express, Credit Suisse, and Qualcomm, just to mention a few. So we're very happy to have Justin on board this morning, California time. Welcome to our podcast, Justin. Good morning and good afternoon where you are. Justin will be joined today by one of our colleagues, Mr. Antti Guha, who is a partner at Hannes Nelman with a focus on capital markets, public and private M&A transactions. Antti will comment upon similar trends through what he sees in his practice here in the Nordics. Hello, Antti, and welcome. Hi, great to be here. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. So Justin, when talking about shareholder litigation and boardroom liability litigation, what trends have you identified in the US in the past years? So there are a few trends that I think we're kind of keeping an eye on in the United States. One important trend for companies that are incorporated in Delaware is that there are increasing numbers of demand for the inspection of corporate books and records by shareholders that we're seeing. The, the Court of Chancery has has somewhat relaxed the standards for shareholders seeking access to company books and records. And so as a result of this, there are many more demands that are coming in and, and companies are responding to more and more of these and shareholders are beginning to use these sorts of requests for books and records as a sort of tool for inspecting corporate action before filing some sort of a lawsuit against the company. Another trend that we're seeing more of is litigation against special purpose acquisition companies. These are blank check companies or, or companies that are incorporated without any uh, ongoing operations. And their purpose is to go out and effectively accomplish an acquisition. And we're seeing more and more litigation against these companies, both on the basis of their public disclosures to shareholders. And now for the first time, we're beginning to see litigation against them on the grounds of fiduciary duty obligations to the shareholders. And I guess the final one that I would mention, and this has been going on for several years now, is litigation against companies involving interested party transactions. So transactions with you know, a controlling stockholder or a board member or you know, any kind of a an entity that has an actual controlling interest in the company itself. So knowing that the Nordic countries have followed some best practices in the governance of publicly traded companies, Antti, what relevance would you say that these US trends have in the Nordics? As you said, there's a lot of key concepts and uh, kind of principles applied in the Nordics that have been derived from previous US practice, US corporate law doctrine. Uh, in particular in Delaware. So 
some of the fundamental corporate law concepts, such as the duty of loyalty, the so-called business judgment rule, these have been heavily influenced by our interpretation of how these concepts are interpreted in, in the U.S., in Delaware in particular. So, for instance, Justin mentioned litigation regarding SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies. I think that is an area where there probably won't be a lot of litigation right away, perhaps ever, around SPACs in the Nordics because our system doesn't rely on litigation as heavily as typically in, in the U.S., but the relevance, the way I see it, comes really from the issues that are raised, for instance, the disclosure and adequacy of disclosure to shareholders and potential investors around SPACs. That's definitely a question that is, as a concept and as a kind of structural issue, is something that Nordic lawyers will be and are thinking about hard in relation to this new type of uh, corporate structures. So I think the litigation practice in the US and the way it evolves definitely provides a lot of source material and interesting parallels when lawyers in the Nordics are kind of trying to grapple with similar questions and issues. So Justin, when you're sitting there in trial for cases in the US, do you actually think that the whole world is watching? I think it depends on the case. You know, a lot of our cases, when I talk to my non-lawyer friends, <laughs> they're not particularly interesting sounding, you know, litigation over some security that a company uh, issued and a stockholder took interest or, or, or took issue with. But but sometimes we get interesting ones for sure. So definitely there are some high profile ones that everybody's interested in. So maybe it's good to know that there are a few lawyers out there who are interested, although your non-lawyer friends may not find that so exciting at the time being. Uh, but coming back to the litigation trends that you identified, what impact have the recent trends that you identified had on deals uh, and the way they're done and constructed in, in the US? So I think that they put a lot of emphasis on boardroom process in, in the US and in particular, they put a lot of emphasis on independence. So particularly deals that involve some sort of an interested party. The Delaware Chancery Court is very focused on whether or not there were was an independent committee that was set up, when it was set up, how early in the process were, was there a special committee set up, how independent were the directors, and how did they did they function independently, or were they just only kind of nominally independent. So there's a lot of emphasis. It puts a lot of focus on independence in deals where there is some sort of a potential conflict or some sort of an interested party. It also puts a lot of emphasis on disclosures to the stockholders because these deals frequently are submitted to the stockholders for approval. And the effect of receiving stockholder approval in a stockholder vote oftentimes is to extinguish liability for any violations of fiduciary duty principles. But that's only the case if you can show that the information that was disclosed to the stockholders really was, you know, encompassed everything that was material and that was significant from the perspective of those stockholders. 
the stockholders need to be fully informed in order to make a rational decision around a deal. And so the it's only if a company can show that the stockholders were fully informed and that the disclosures were adequate that the directors will receive the benefit of having that fiduciary duty liability extinguished. So I would say that those are two very important trends. One, you know, one is the focus on independence in these conflicted stockholder transactions and the other well, it's always the case that your disclosures to your stockholders are very important, but they become even more important in you know the last few years. There's so much focus on them. So, Antti, are you seeing similar influences on the way deals are done in the Nordics as well? Yeah, definitely. I think the um, focus on process and the not only the question of whether something is in terms of substance correct, but also the appearance of it being appropriate and, and proper in terms of how, for instance, board committees come to a certain conclusion. And there we've definitely seen, especially during the past 10 years, an increased focus on emphasizing and securing independence, even in situations, for instance, in takeover situations uh, where the target company board members have to assess how and whether they take part in deliberations regarding the takeover offer. Regardless of whether, as a kind of strict point of law, a director would be required to disqualify herself, there's been kind of a move towards processes where you make sure that everything looks proper, both from the Nordic perspective, but also in terms of how international investors view the situation by applying often voluntarily a standard that is more rigorous than perhaps would be the legally required minimum if such a case ever went to court. So I think that's a direct consequence of the emphasis on process and the appearance and of independence that comes from the US and also UK praxis. So do you think until the driver here is sort of what comes from the US or is there also something here in the Nordics which is making this sort of change happen? Hard to say kind of with any certainty, but I think a lot of the thinking comes definitely where Finland is a small country. The Nordics are a small region compared to the US or the UK, a lot of these ideas and concepts and the way people think about these problems are by necessity influenced by international standards and including how international institutional investors see and react to these questions. And I, I think that it's only a positive thing. We don't have to reinvent everything here because quite a bit of these standards and procedures are, in a strict sense, voluntary. You can also, to some extent, pick and choose which aspects of, for instance, US praxis or UK praxis seem suitable. And there's a bit more leeway in that sense, because ultimately, I think the risk of litigation and personal liability is still a bit more far off in many of these situations under Finnish law, for instance, than is the case in the US and Delaware. And I guess you mentioned international investors as well. I guess they come with sort of a set of expectations as to procedure or? Yeah, I definitely think that's true. And, you know, it's often about how you 
formulate and shape the problem and how you perceive the situation, what kind of paradigm you have for analyzing it. And there the influence is, is definitely strong in many cases. Although, of course, ultimately in, in, there are situations where as Finnish lawyers or Swedish lawyers, we say and we have to say that, yeah, this works or is relevant under local law or that that's not a consideration or a concept that exists here. So it's kind of a combination of those two aspects. Justin, coming back to one of the trends that you identified, which is the SPAC litigation around the special purpose acquisition companies, I guess due to the nature of these companies, the, the case law is, is very much evolving and, and taking shape. Are there cases that you have your eyes on and what do you expect to see in, in the coming years in that field? Yeah, there are a few different cases that we're following. I would say that they sort of fall into two categories. One category of cases that we're following, generally speaking, involves a SPAC that's completed a merger, and the merger then, for whatever reason, turns out not to be as value accretive or as successful as the SPAC had you know, initially anticipated or as the shareholders had anticipated, or at least the stockholders sue and claim that it's not as, as successful as had been anticipated. And that causes which may be equally profitable. <laughs> right, exactly. And which causes the stock price to drop. And there's litigation alleging that the disclosures that were made surrounding the deal were not adequate or they were misleading or there was information, you know, that, that should have been included in those disclosures that weren't included. And that caused the stockholders to, you know, approve the deal without sort of full information. There are a few of those types of cases that are going on. None of them have really reached any kind of a resolution yet. We're keeping an eye on them to see if the courts deal with them any differently than the courts deal with typical disclosure-related cases of that sort. The other category that we're keeping an eye on are fiduciary duty claims. They're not sort of narrowly targeted to just the disclosures, but the allegation is that the directors of the SPAC violated their fiduciary duties in approving the deal. And there's one in particular case that's been filed recently in the Delaware Chancery Court against a SPAC that was called Multiplan. And the allegation that's being made there is effectively that the sponsor entity of the SPAC and the directors that were associated with that sponsor entity, because they had different economic incentives from all of the rest of the stockholders, were in a sense conflicted by those different economic incentives. And therefore, that the court of chancery should not apply the business judgment rule to the transaction that they approved and instead should give it more searching, you know, more intense scrutiny. And the impact of that would be that typically when the Court of Chancery and the type of scrutiny that they're asking for is entire fairness review, which involves looking at whether the deal was fair from both a price perspective and a process perspective, the impact of that would be that it would be very difficult for a company to succeed on a motion to dismiss in the Chancery Court, which means that more and more of these types of deals would end up in you know, the more protracted litigation that you see in the court. So we're keeping an eye on both of those categories of litigation right now. So if our podcast survives this first series, then we might come back to you and ask how, how all of that went. Yeah, we'll have to do an update. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, Ante, you already mentioned with regard to the SPACs that you don't think we'll see a lot of litigation per se in the Nordics, but what do you think we can expect to see in this respect? This is a great example of what we discussed in terms of what the relevance of US praxis is, because the two dimensions that Justin mentioned, the disclosure questions and the fiduciary duty claims and potential conflicts of interest between the sponsor and other shareholders, those are kind of at the heart of the structural questions or issues that need to be thought thoroughly and and hard when dealing with and designing these type of structures and, and using them. So whether or not those are litigated as extensively, I think Definitely, I'm I'm going to look up the multi-plan documentation after this for sure, because the topics, the structures are similar. The questions are very much the same. So there's, I think, much to learn from how those are approached in terms of what gives cause to, for instance, conflicts of interest potentially in these kind of structures. So in that sense... I think it's extremely interesting and useful for Nordic lawyers working in corporate law or uh, capital markets law to be familiar with the arguments that are being made in these cases in the U.S. So now, Ante, that we know that you follow the U.S. market closely, we know you've studied there, and this is sort of part of what you do in order to be able to advise your clients in the Nordics, in addition to going back and reading the multi-plan case file, when you get out of here, is there any litigation that you follow closely that you would like to sort of get Justin's thoughts on? Yeah, one case that is kind of interesting or has aroused interest in the Nordics as well was the fairly recent Nine West decision, which was in the Southern District of New York, I think. A case where the question concerned fiduciary duties in a buyout situation where fairly shortly after the buyout was completed, target company went bankrupt. And the question as to how or whether in terms of Delaware law, US law, general principles around fiduciary duties, whether that case represents substantial new development compared to previous practices. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. It's one that a lot of people in the U.S. have been looking at as well. I think that there are some important details of that case that sort of help answer the question. One is my recollection is that the company at issue in that case was not actually incorporated in Delaware. So the fiduciary duty principles that the court was applying in that instance were not Delaware fiduciary duty principles. I believe they were fiduciary duty principles of Pennsylvania. And because quirks of our legal system in the United States, each state has slightly different principles and slightly different laws. And in this instance, I think part of the explanation for the outcome there is that it wasn't a Delaware company that was at issue. Typically in Delaware, in a buyout situation, The law is fairly clear that the board's duty above all is to get the best price for the shareholders. And in the Nine West case, I don't think that there's really a dispute that the board did, in fact, maximize the price it could receive for the company 
for the shareholders and the shareholders voted to approve the deal as a result of it. So under Delaware law, I think there's a real question as to whether a court would have said that there was any sort of a violation of fiduciary duties. But because in this particular instance, this court was not applying Delaware law, it was applying a different state's law, I think you find yourself in a slightly different situation. And in the Nine West case, the court held that because the directors approved a deal that ultimately down the road landed the company in bankruptcy, even though the deal involved getting a very good price for the shareholders beforehand, because of the ultimate bankruptcy, the directors violated their fiduciary duties to the company itself. So it's not clear to me that this is sort of a new trend. I think it might be, it might also be explained in part by the fact that the company at issue was not a Delaware company. It was a company that was incorporated in a different state. But it is a very interesting new development that we're certainly keeping our eye on. How would this sound to you, Antti? Yeah, I think this kind of highlights the point that the rabbit hole goes deep and the details matter, whether which jurisdiction the company in question is located in, what are the facts of the specific case, what's the context, what's the finding of the court. So yeah, I, I think a good example of um, how just reading on a headline level, which was how I first noticed this case based in an article in a financial press, you perhaps may get a more severe impression or dramatic impression. But when you investigate further in the details and see what perhaps distinguishes this case from previous cases, then the ultimate conclusion may be very different indeed. So we are nearing the end of the podcast and towards the end, we would like to move on to some more lighthearted questions, which we ask all of our guests. So the first one is, what litigation trend do you expect to see in the future or which trend are you already following closely? What would you say to that, Justin? So I think one interesting question that we're following in the U.S. is as there's more and more focus on environmental and social issues and environmental and social disclosures, whether that means that there's going to be shareholder litigation related to those disclosures. So um, the disclosures that companies make to their shareholders in the United States are often a topic of litigation. And I think it will be interesting to see whether that includes you know, environmental and social issues. Uh, we've seen it a little bit. There have been some suits, for example, against uh, oil and gas companies over climate change related disclosures. And, um, you know, as more and more companies adopt practices of making disclosures related to environmental social issues, I think it will be interesting to see if that shifts the litigation landscape at all. Antti, what would you say? What, what trend are you following closely? Everything that is related to general corporate duties, some aspects of disclosure-related questions, it's always good to hear about them and try to keep up to date, at least on major developments. And I'm in this room and in this virtual space where we are, I'm, I'm the only non-litigator, so I don't try. That's why we like you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that's why I, I don't think I have 
as much insight into those trends well, as, you know, as some of the guys here. So, <laughs> Well, you know, we'll be calling you whenever something like this arises. So, <laughs> Aren't they the litigator's best friend? <laughs> yeah. As a Nordic law firm, uh, we also have to ask, what's the most interesting thing, Justin, that you know about the Nordics or the most memorable thing? So, you know, I had this funny, this is more of sort of a funny story. I remember when I was a little kid in school, we had an assignment to learn about everybody was assigned a country and we were all told to learn about their cuisine and to learn a recipe that you know that another that they cook in another country exactly so we had friends who were from finland it was family friends and we asked if they had any particular recipe that we could learn and that i could cook for my school project and they gave us a recipe. I believe it was, this was a long time ago now, so I might be I might be misremembering, but I believe it was a type of cake that they gave us a recipe for. And my mom and I, you know, spent an afternoon together in the kitchen preparing it, you know, preparing the batter and we put it in a sheet pan and we put it in the oven. And we didn't realize the extent to which the cake would rise. And we used a sheet pan <laughs> with a very, very low edge around the side. And we were sitting in the other room in our house and suddenly we started to smell smoke. And we ran into the <laughs> kitchen and we realized that the cake had risen over the edges of the sheet pan and had fallen onto the bottom of the oven and caught on fire. And our entire, <laughs> our entire oven had caught fire. So That's um, definitely the most original answer we've received so far. And you know, your, your family friends clearly omitted to tell you that in the Nordics, it's so cold and dark for six months of the year that your cake has to be pretty thick. So, <laughs> so, so is that, Justin, what made you want be a litigator your house got burned <laughs> no. down because of a finished cake and you figured somebody has to be blamed for this <laughs> <laughs> well no actually we did i will say that to finish the story we did ultimately that that cake caught on fire and we couldn't use it we were able to put out the fire we did try again we using appropriate uh, implements in the kitchen and it was delicious ultimately what i was able to bring into school but I don't think I'll ever forget that particular introduction to Finnish cuisine when I was a little kid. <laughs> I, I have to say that's pretty original, but Justin, if you ever make it to the Nordics, you're invited for cake, that's for sure. <laughs> Excellent. I, I look forward to it. <laughs> and Auntie, what would you say? I've been struggling with this aspect a little bit when I was abroad studying in the UK for six months and... Um, spent a couple of years studying and working in the U.S., whether to kind of emphasize the or bring up the um, kind of exotic aspects of the Nordics or basically highlight the the extreme moderation of Finland in many, many ways that, that we are kind of a, a middle-of-the-road country in many aspects. I do remember when I was in the U.K., I was not able to convince some of my international peers that uh, the sun doesn't rise for weeks in the north north of Finland. That was just simply inconceivable for someone from London or New Delhi to think about. I think more and more aspects of the Nordic social model like free university education, long summer holidays, those were things that more and more people in the US when I was last time there for 2015, 2016 were aware of and asked me about. I think that's awareness of the good aspects of that system 
uh, has become more pronounced recently. But other than that, I've always thought that the, uh, well, fundamentally people are much the same everywhere. So Nordics, in many ways, at least being a corporate lawyer living in Helsinki, it's uh, it doesn't feel that exotic day to day for me. I think it's a, a many aspects of daily life and work in, in particular are pretty much the same as they were uh, when I was practicing in New York for a year. And and those things do go hand in hand. So when the sun doesn't rise for weeks, you actually need some time off in the summer and then you can actually, again, spend the winter working. So <laughs> it all comes together in the end. I once took winter holiday in November and that was like the worst decision I ever yeah, made. Don't. If you do that, you have to travel. You're not allowed to stay in Finland and do winter holiday in November. It should be banned by law. <laughs> anyway, um, what would you say is the funniest or most memorable moment you've had in either a courtroom, a hearing or a meeting? What would you say, Justin? Well, I, you know, it's funny. I'm out. I'm in California right now uh, for the trial between Epic Games and Apple. It's a big antitrust case, and it's being watched by a lot of media in the United States and a lot of video game players because Epic makes Fortnite, and Fortnite has been removed from the App Store right now. So, you know, it was interesting on the first day of trial, because of all the media attention, the court uh, set up a public phone line so that members of the public could dial in and listen to the proceedings and had some technical issues with it where the court was not able to mute the members of the public. So, <laughs> so there were several hundred people dialed into the phone line, including young, including young children who had dialed in to try and find out what was going to happen with Fortnite. And there were, you know, voices of children saying things like, you know, asking the court to bring Fortnite back to to the iPhone and and that sort of thing. Luckily, luckily, none of that was actually audible in the courtroom, um, but it was audible to everybody else who had dialed into the hearing. And so I think it just goes to show you the importance of getting all of the technological details sort of worked out up front in this particular instance. I love the sort of innocent children's voices backing up your story. <laughs> back it was very memorable, for sure. That's fantastic. Well, you good would... luck with that case. Thank you. Yeah, we're certainly following it with interest here as well. And you would think after a year of a pandemic like this, people know what a mute button is, but apparently not. Apparently not. <laughs> so, Antti, any similar experiences? Ever had any kids call into one of your meetings? I don't think that has happened. I've I have had a meeting years ago in a, in a large corporate transaction where there was a baby of, I think he or she was a couple of months old. That was uh, the child of a strategy director of a company, and the baby was there for a couple of hours of the meeting in the corner of this fairly large meeting room, and um, didn't make a sound. So very well behaved, couple of months old kid there but in terms of other reminiscence i'm going to have to go with more the uh, memorable instances not necessarily you know as fun as justin's mic or phone line uh, extravaganza but what has been memorable to me has been the um, couple of times that i was involved in a litigation case as trainee and a recently graduated lawyer way back around 10, 12 years ago. 
criminal case and a uh, employment-related dispute. Those were definitely memorable when you were young and uh, had not had any previous direct experience with litigation. And because since then I changed to the uh, corporate transaction deal-making side, those are my only two direct links to the world of litigation. So that So far. So far, so far. <laughs> perhaps I'll, I'll, when I get back to the office, perhaps I'll, I'll do a secondment in, in your group. Never knows. <laughs> uh, but that definitely made an impression. I think were useful experiences as a lawyer, even though I didn't end up as a litigator. And I remember the details of those cases from 12 years ago, much more vividly, I have to say, than some of the deals that happened a couple of years ago. Because when you're young and you first encounter these things, you kind of seared into your memory and also, you know, gave me a, a lot of appreciation of the skills that uh, various skills that you need to to be a litigator so definitely tip of the hat to you guys here and all other litigators um, that uh, do that type of work in in various situations and courtrooms and arbitration treaty tribunals and what have you well auntie we forgot to tell you that your baby would have been welcome knowing that you're on parental leave but uh, maybe (laughs) with this uh, we say thank you to both of you gentlemen and we let Auntie go back to parent leave and Justin to make sure that Fortnite stays in the game. So, <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. This concludes the first season of the Legal Trends by Hannah Snellman podcast in which we have discussed global litigation trends. While we wait for the next season of this podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode or wish to continue the discussion online, please follow our LinkedIn profile or other Hannes Nelman social media channels. 